Magella, can you tell me please about your involvement in ARIS? We were in the Irish Missionary Union. I continued there for six years uh, from 1995 to 2001. And by 2000, I happened to see a television show, Lairgas. And I came in one evening from my work in the Irish Missionary Union, took my lunch into our community sitting room and sat down. And the programme was in Irish, of which I do not understand one word. I noticed two people with yellow hats on them and a few other things, not very consequential. But the next day when I came back and did the same thing, wasn't the same program on again. And I said, my goodness, I must take note of what this is about. Because the second time I was looking at it, I figured out that this was to do with oil and it had to do with an oil well or a gas well in Mayo. It would seem that... This was the bishop in the yellow hat and the other person was the parish priest in another yellow hat with the general manager of what was then Enterprise Energy Ireland. And they were standing beside a helicopter and it emerged that they had just come back from blessing a gas well that had been discovered 80 kilometres off the coast. The most interesting part of the film was a look at one of the priests He was dressed very differently in these shots. He was visiting Alaska and he was with the Inuit people and he was explaining just in a few shots that he discovered the Inuit people danced on their knees and he proceeded to dance on his knees. Of course, I interpreted it the wrong way around. I said the priest and the bishop must be very interested in oil and gas production in Alaska. That is the conclusion I would have come to. So then I said, well, if there's a new gas well off the Mayo coast, and I've spent nearly, well, seven, eight years studying oil and gas production, I surely would have an interest in this, but mostly an academic interest. I said to myself, well, I don't speak Irish, yet a lot of this story can be understood in English, which was not the case in the Agoni situation. Right, I was talking to Ken Sarawiwa, but the people, I never was able to communicate with the people and get the feel of them about the discovery of the petroleum on their area. So I just kind of filed it for the moment. And then I was interested enough the next day when I went into work to get the Catholic directory and to look for the name of the priest in the Catholic directory. I couldn't find anyone. There was one with a big, big, long Irish name. And of course, I didn't understand Irish. So I went into one of the other staff who just laughed when she saw it. And she says, oh, that's Father Declan Caulfield. So, of course, when you see Caulfield in Irish, it was probably quite an extraordinary. But the interesting thing was before I went into consultor, I just sighed and said, or maybe another priest that's not in favour with the church because I couldn't really figure out who he was. And am I going to start my harsh journey again? When I went in and she told me the name, I was very pleased that there was a parish priest in this area where the gas well was supposed to be discovered. So then I rang up RT, I think, and I asked for a telephone number. Anyway, I was able to ring him And it was the only phone call that I was able to make. I tried to call him a number of times again, 
but was unsuccessful. But that one, I was successful. And I told him I was interested in what I'd seen on television and his place in it, that he was parish priest of the area. And he said, yes. And I said, well, if there's ever a meeting about it, I would very much like to come and see how all this happens in Ireland, because I've been through it in quite an intense way in Nigeria, but that I only have an academic interest in it. So the only phone call I ever got from him was to call back and say that there was an open meeting in Belmullet in a week or two and that he would try to get me transport from Dublin. And I rang him a few times, no success. In the end, he said, get the train and I will meet you in Ballina. He was very good now. The poor man is dead. It was a long journey from Dublin to to Eris. is not short. And it was the time they were doing the railway track. And I think we were on a train maybe as far as Castle Ree, and then we were on a bus for another while. And I think when we got to Claremorris, two of us were going to Ballina, and the train or the bus wasn't going that far. So Inrodern produced a taxi to take us the rest of the way. So we were brought to Ballina station, and there in a very big, I think it was a green Hayachi van, the priest with the big beard was waiting to collect me. You know, I was expecting a car. I wasn't expecting a big, big, big van. So I climbed into it anyway. And then I discovered that where I was going was another 40 kilometres on. So it's very windy and very wild. So he was kind enough on the way to Balmullet. There is a high radar station where planes leaving the United States hit the radar when they enter Irish airspace. And so way, way up on a very high mountain. And he took me up to see that and I was nearly blown off it. But anyway, we then went on to Belmullet and he had very kindly booked a room for me with the sisters in the convent. And the meeting was to take place in the college hall. Now, I didn't say that when he met me in Ballina, he took me to meet the late bishop in his house and he gave lunch to him and to me in a very homely and friendly situation and I was to learn that this bishop was part of Council of the West, a strong local organisation to try to bring investment to the west of Ireland. So when we came into the meeting in the hall much later that evening, I didn't expect to see the bishop sitting at the table and Father Deglon, who was with me, and five or six others whom I don't remember. And I'd made the most awful mistake. I thought I was at a meeting of anti-gas campaigners. I was not to speak. This was going to be an academic study, an observation of the same project in another context. So somewhere during the meeting, I was called to speak, and I got up in total freedom of soul and mind thinking that I was in a group of anti-shell or it was anti-enterprise energy people and it turned out that most of them were for the gas and I started in a very cynical way I said I wouldn't be surprised if the freebies have arrived that you're getting little grants for the golf course and the swimming pool and the football club and all these things and I'm sure there are invitations coming to have dinner out so I didn't, I didn't even sense anything in the audience. And there was about maybe, well, about 50 people there. I then realised maybe that Antahar Daglon, as he was known, 
that he couldn't get me a lift from Dublin because he was intending that his own brother was to bring me from Dublin. And his own brother is Dr. Seamus Caulfield, the man who has developed the KG Fields. And he, towards the end of the meeting, stood up and said he had no apology to make, but he was one of the people who accepted invitations to dinner. <laughs> so I was shocked. I only slowly realised that I was not in the meeting that I thought I was in. The one thing when I went into the hall which assured me I was in the right situation was the welcome I got from a German woman, Monica Muller, and she rushed over and she seems to had known all about the Agoni issue. And she just was so excited that here I was, straight from the side of the late Ken Sarawiwa. And she and her husband then, Gerald, they had a big bag of papers. And I said, they're the people doing the research. And they had done a very fine job researching the issue and made many interventions that night. The sad thing was that I came to the next day, I had my bed and breakfast in the convent, and then how to get home, because now I'd got a lift from Balana, far, far away from Eris. There was no sign of Antaherdeglon. I never saw him again. And the poor man died just some years ago. And I would think at the time that he was in a situation of being very uncertain about whether it was right or whether it was wrong, and that I suppose he was delighted maybe to have somebody that would go one way or the other, but I happened to be going the wrong way. I don't know. We had to telephone somebody. I think it was Monica who came and took me back to Ballina. And it was then I realised that their number of cars is small. They have little vans because they used to bring in dogs and sheep and that kind of, to the vet. So there are not that many cars around. A lot of people have little vans, and that was a new realisation for me in a kind of a very rural community. So I came back, and of course, having gone through that experience, I would be very attentive. The next morning, even before I left my own house for work, there were telephone calls. And one was from a man who had been at the meeting, and he thanked me so much for my talk and kind of commended me very strongly and certainly had a very good grasp of what I had talked about. And then Maura Harrington, who is now the spokesperson for Shell to See, she wasn't at that meeting either. So she phoned me and she was very well on top of the story because evidently there had been quite some agitation in the previous year with Frank Fahey, who was the minister of the time. And also the people were very unnerved by the fact that all the information had come in through the Catholic Church. And that made them very uneasy too, because they really trust their church up there. And that's very well brought out in the story of the Rossport Five, Kathleen Nishine. Anyway, in that book, Kathleen just says about me, she found her own way home that there was nobody from that meeting very willing to take me. So I just said, my God, the story is beginning all over again. So I came back to Dublin, continued with my work. It was my last year in the IMU. And I had started a kind of a trend of having an annual Ken Sarawiwa Memorial Seminar. And my objective was to use that seminar to create awareness about the environment and about big business. I felt it was a good way to remember Sarawiwa and that every year it would make us read up and have a look at what was developing in the area. 
So I have this kind of little analogy that I use. I'm always looking for Kiplans, and that is enough interest in an issue in an area that would make a seminar easy to organise. Because if there's no interest, you just wouldn't go into any part of Ireland and say, I'm coming with the seminar. So I suggested to Maura Harrington and said, could we bring the Ken Sarawiwa Memorial Seminar to Eris? And she was very cooperative. And at that point, it was set up in um, a hotel in Gisala, which is maybe 20 kilometres away from where the issue is expressing itself now. And Khomeini Fama, the guy from Ogoni who was studying in Ireland, he was a refugee, he came and another one of our sisters, Dimna. And a lot of the charts that I've shown you this evening were prepared for that seminar in 2001, which is a long time ago. It's 11 years ago. And we put them into Bosserden's boot and we carried the whole lot from Dublin, first to Ballina, and then from Ballina we got the local bus. There's a bus that comes down every day to Ballina and goes back at five in the evening. So we transferred all our belongings to the bus. And it goes up to a junction in Glenamoy. And at that little junction, the people separate from the bigger bus to little buses. And then they carry you to your destination. So it is really intriguing, that first trip. Just it was something I was not exposed to before. Anyway, we arrived in Gisala and there was a very good seminar. We started on Friday evening, went into Saturday. And the very energising moment of that was the presence of one of the senior civil servants in the Department of Petroleum Affairs, PAD, which is still very active. Shell didn't accept an invitation, but there were 50 or 60 people there. The first evening we opened the exhibition and Khomeini spoke about Agoni. But because the kind of focus of these seminars is for people to have time to discuss their own experience of multinational activity, the rest of the next day was really designed by Maura and all the speakers kind of followed like that. So it was very successful, but it was the first time that the whole issue of Eris was brought out very clearly. My memories of my engagement with Eris per se are not terribly clear over the next few years because I continued with my own work. I left the Irish Missionary Union 2001. I was not doing very much for several months and then I went to work with the Pontifical Mission Society for two years. But I still kept running the Kensar We Were Memorial Seminar. We would have gone to Donegal, we'd have gone to Derry, we'd have done it two or three times in Dublin. And in more recent years, maybe three times in Cork and once or twice more in Eris. We went to Eris in 2004 again. We had the meeting in Castlebar and there were only 15 people at it. It just didn't look great and it didn't look great even for the project at that time. I think people were getting very tired. I wouldn't know what they were feeling. But I kept in touch from 2004, maybe more closely, until 2006. At that time, I had finished my work with the Pontifical Mission Society, continued doing the annual memorial seminars, and went to Mary Immaculate College in Limerick to do 
a second master's, this time in theology, looking back at Vatican II and what impact the documents Gaudium et Spes had on the direction of my work and my life. Because I went back to those early days when I responded to the request to represent the Africa Europe Faith and Justice Network. And I had no idea where that push in Catholic theology had come from. So even though I left, well, Pontifical Mission Society had nothing to do with that, when I asked could I do this Masters by Research only, I was also asked to combine that with being Justice Animator for our own institute. So that left me with freedom to continue working on these issues a little and to do my studies because I just didn't know where that very first mandate came out of and it was a mandate that had made a huge impact on my life in that I gave up my life in Nigeria, gave up my life teaching the university, gave up my PhD, gave up a whole lot of things to follow that mandate to its bitter conclusion. I was doing that very happily and very comfortably. I lived in Mary I and I lived in a student flat. Sometime in November, six years ago, I had got into my bed at seven o'clock in the evening to spread out all my research materials on the bed to do one extra big push at a particular piece of work. And my phone rang at about ten to seven. And it was Maura Harrington. She sounded a bit anxious and what she was trying to tell me was that they were going to force the lorries, which they'd been protesting against for six months, that they were going to push them in under guard protection the next morning, she thought. And I suitably sympathised with her and then went off the phone and got back to my research. But it kept bothering me. So about eight o'clock or nine o'clock, I rang her back and I said, had you any expectation of me when you rang me like this out of the blue? And she said, I would just like if you were here. And I said, you know where I am, Limerick. Anyway, I rang my brother, <laughs> who would understand this kind of situation. And my brother said, well, go ahead if your health can hold it. So I had no transport, so I said, how do I get from Limerick to Palnaboy in Eris at eight o'clock at night? So these are again the jumps that justice people have to take. I ring up local taxi man and I said, is this possible at all? He said, yes. I said, how much is it? 300 euro. So where in the name of God to think about that? Because I never, never, ever take money from the groups that I work with. I'm in a, a kind of a mandated position, so I have a tiny budget that I use carefully to allow me not to have to rely on communities that I work with. I rang Maura and I said, it's possible they can prepare a driver now, send him home to have his dinner and have him ready, and they can drive me up. Oh, but she said, I'm in Galway. I can wait for you in Galway. So I ring the taxi man back, and that brings down the bill to €150. Euro. Gets his best taxi man, feeds him, tells him to get into a good taxi and take me up to hotel on the edge of Galway, probably in Ornmore. So I reached there at 11 o'clock at night. 
And because I had gone through extensive experience on the Gavai Road, I could almost tell you the strategy book for public order containment. So Maura put me into the car and it took us, well, an hour and a half to reach Balnaboy. And when I got there, it was after 1am, there's a big concrete space in front of the terminal gates and the local people had parked their cars, maybe about 20 cars and tractors in front of it. They had mounted a kind of a blockade. My feeling was they will put in a containment exercise any time after 1am. It's not going to be at 6 in the morning. They don't do that in the book. So I asked them just to rush me to the hostel where I was staying, which they did, which is quite a distance away. And that was my first time visiting El Common Lodge. Because the first time I had been in Gisala and in Castle Bar, and Gisala is 20 kilometres away, and it's not anywhere near the area in conflict. So then I wouldn't delay at all. I just dropped my bag, rushed back with Maura to Balnaboy. People were all standing about. It was maybe quarter to 2, 2 a.m. They had a little trailer up there, which is really a horse box. And they had it all decked out as a little office and HQ. There was a, a generator outside and then there was a, a burko boiler inside and there was tea and coffee on the go all the time and had been for months. And there was dozens of packets of biscuits and everything. And the lady who owned that, who managed that was Mary Horn and it was her brother who owned the trailer that had been brought there every single morning for the previous six months at 6am to mount a protest. But the feeling from everybody was that the protest was going to be broken the next morning. So of course we didn't go to bed at all. Well, I was used to that from the north, from the parades. You learn to stay up at night. About three o'clock, the Gardaí began coming in on their buses. And you talk about a feeling of isolation away in the middle of the bog again. 200 Gardaí came in. And, of course, they had these barriers, you know, steel barriers. So they put all those up. There was no rush. It was all very well and meticulously planned. It was public order strategy. And it took them nearly two hours to cut off all the roads. And then the people were all sitting down. We had talked about that before, like active non-violent protest. You just sit down like bags of salt and you're just lifted and let them lift you. Don't resent, resist. So <coughs> they had done that and... They used a technique which has now been very much criticised. It's called kettling. It's really containment where everybody is put in to a section and the barriers are put round them and in front of the barriers stand a guard almost shoulder to shoulder right round. So if you had a heart attack, they probably wouldn't even kind of collapse it for you because it, the strategy wouldn't be in place. Now, interestingly enough, when I was in the trailer waiting for that to happen... I just suddenly found myself saying, Maura, I would like to begin an observer tradition here because I had done that on Gavahi Road and it had made a big difference. And I think what touched me most of all was the next thing, teacher and all that she is, she came back with the side of a cardboard box and two strings and across the back of it she had written observer. And she puts this on me and sends me out. And I walk about, the guards had never heard of an observer before, as far as I could see. So I was pushed in along with the rest of them. 
And then the trailer, Mary Horn was managing the trailer as she has done. She just has such a tradition of goodness, that woman. Somehow they missed her in the trailer because it was still outside. So at a point in time, I couldn't stand very well. So there's an old bus within the container area. So I climbed into the bus and I sat and I was looking out through the window. I was inside the cordon. And the next thing I saw Mary Horn being carried like a corpse past by about six guards. And she's only five foot and maybe she's a very slight woman. And she was being carried like a corpse. They had discovered they'd left one outside the cordon and they brought her in and put her in as well. So we were there the whole night until nine o'clock in the morning. It was very, it, it just, just break your heart because then, and this is the, the tragedy of all of these situations. There are local contractors who are entrepreneurs, as I say, who don't want to miss out on the once only quick book. So they came in to drag the cars. They were brought in, they were locals brought in to trail the cars and some of those cars now they were given adequate notice that they could get into their cars and drive them away Gardy would have obeyed most of their strategy book but some of them had left their brakes on you know and to see your car being towed off backwards with the brake on and there was at least one or two big vans there that were very um, heartbreaking experience that night very heartbreaking I wouldn't have been present for the six months of mourning protests before, but they're all well recorded where when people did sit on the road, when there was a bit of pushing and shoving, you know, the people got quite badly beaten and pushed and shoved. And that's all very well recorded on video. And it has been brought to a lot of agencies, but there has been no kind of recompense for the people. That was 2006. I suppose I continue going up there after that. They established good ways of having meetings. The the shelter somewhere along that time, they actually a bit like Ogoni's survival. They formed the Arrow Group, which in this case was Shell to Sea. Now, at that time, the pipe about which the pipe was planned to run in front of houses in Rossport. And then with many of the onboard Planola hearings, the people proved and the government had to accept that it was unsafe. So they moved them, the pipeline, behind the houses. Again, the people, through rational argument and expertise, that that application was faulted. So there were two applications proved unworthy of going forward. So it was in that era that the Rossport people were badly affected and felt the whole thing very seriously. Now, I can't remember what year, but I did see the pain in the people because one neighbour sold his field to Shell, the next neighbour didn't. One neighbour allowed the county council to widen the road for Shell trucks, the next neighbour didn't. So I asked for a Good Friday walk along the Rossport side, which was at issue then. And the idea was to have a silent walk and anybody could come on it. And it was somehow to kind of grieve for what you're losing, you know, losing your community, 
harmony and everything like that. It was just a grieving and it was held at a time that didn't contradict the normal Good Friday. So there's a very big turnout of that and there were people in tears at that and it was just very, very sad. They're one of the events that we started in a positive way. Now, the people were very, very busy. I really was very much on the edge of all of their efforts. But I would have gone to attend their efforts, if you like. The pipeline eventually was abandoned on the Rossport side of Broadhaven Bay. And it was brought back over towards the Aarhus side, which is the other side of the bay. And somewhere in those years, again, I can't quite remember, there was a kind of a breakdown in communications between the people of Rossport and the people on the other side of the bay. It wasn't even described as neatly as that. There were people who were very concerned about health and safety. And there were people who were concerned about how little people were getting out of shell, how little the state was. So I know that I would have offered advice. Well, go ahead with what you feel you're comfortable with. And if you can't, you know, struggle for one or other of those, opt for which one you can struggle. Uh, but that was all outside my, you know, that happened without me. So it ended up with Shell to Sea very much attached to the idea of direct action, non-violent direct action. Pubble Kilcommon, who was going to try a negotiated way out of the situation. And another group in Belmullet, very informed and able group, but not no space to, to really operate in Pubble Lokela. And the man in charge of that is an ex-Air Force person who runs some kind of a surfing school up there because it is a land of surfing. Those people are so busy and so able that Magella had nothing much to do except to sit and listen. So in 2008, the protesters were still being beaten very badly by the police. And I said, there's something really wrong with this. So I'm back to my notion of observing again. So this time I am very difficult to find out who'd make a good observer because there were people in the Rossport Solidarity Camp, young activists, not from the area, who were very committed to direct non-action and they were very able to take whatever punishment came their way. So they were a fourth group and they all worked well together on the Ahus side, the Rossport Solidarity Camp and the people of Ahus because in fact, the Solidarity Camp moved. Once the pipeline pathway moved from Rossport, everything turned over now to Ahus. It became the locus of the next bit of activity. I found two others, and we called ourselves the Table Observers. Back 2000, on the Gervahi Road, I saw the very same need that you had two groups struggling with each other, but no third entity, like the state just kept away, everybody kept, Shell kept away, like let the two fighters at it. And there's no third presence and no third witness to that. I remember we started a small group on the Gavahi Road, and by the time I was leaving there, Five years later, and the issue had been resolved, there were eight, 81 observers on the road some of the years that I was there. They came from everywhere and was a great presence. There was such a good support for the people. I had gone through it before and did it quite successfully before. To find people was difficult. So Kilcommon Lodge, where Betty Schultz and her family have lived for 25 years, great centre, people come to stay there. 
So I found myself standing in the middle of the common room and saying, anybody want to be an observer? It was as simple as that. You know, you just said it out loud to the air. And there was a couple there from Sligo, John and Evelyn, and said, you know, we'd be interested in something like that. They didn't really want to get into Shell to see. They were very concerned about the situation. So this provided... Don Lomwaran from Donegal had already been working with me. I met him in the hostel as well. So the four of us made the table observers. We sat down and trained ourselves according to UN guidelines for monitoring and observing, because it's a legitimate activity. And little by little, we carried out, maybe once every two or three months, an observation. We'd go there with our jackets on and be around the place and then write down what we saw. And eventually that became formalised enough to forward to the government and to various places. I think maybe that's what we still continue to do today, if you like. So from that awful night in 2006, somehow there was engagement with the brutality. One of the things that the table did quite successfully was go to the courts, because dozens of these people, even at this moment in time, are being prosecuted. And we have kind of done a lot of work on policing and a lot of work on the right to protest. It's a legitimate right, according to several UN instruments. They haven't a clue about it, of course. Though it is ironic that in Belmullet Garda Station, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is on a frame in, on the wall. And I pointed it out to the guard one day and I said... Yeah, you're out to protect your bit and I'm out to protect mine. And I pointed at the... <laughs> and he said, oh, I know all about it. Like, I, I'm not... I don't express any hostility to anybody. So um, I would have accompanied fellows who might have been arrested right into the station just to let them know that there are other people watching. That would be the whole idea of it. Yeah, we observed a number of court cases and we were left with huge issues from those, huge issues from policing and huge issues from private security company surveillance in the community. There are three huge issues that we have tried to follow up in our most kind of amateurish way. Now, I had asked AFRI because it had kind of been involved in the table campaign initially, but then more or less we, as observers, went out on our own. And they did see the sense in observing, and they made a great contribution And that they contacted Amnesty International, which of course had not worked on any issue in Ireland. From that, then we were directed, or AFRI was directed to Frontline, which has to do with human rights defenders. And Frontline sent a, a barrister up there who spent nearly six months up there. And he did a report, which is really now a benchmark report, on the human rights situation in Eris. Then they hired another lady, an Australian, who had human rights experience, and they placed her up there for six months as well. So I would say that our initiative in 2006, even more as an initiative with the cardboard and the string, started off, I'd say for the first time in Ireland, a kind of the notion of human rights observers. And now, like it's, it's in the newspaper, it's not unknown for the newspaper to say there were human rights observers present. Now, that wouldn't have been in the literature before. So... We're all engaged otherwise, but we still have meetings here every two or three months. 
we have tackled the data, what do you call him, the data commissioner about the use of video footage by the surveillance people. We have tackled the whatever ministry is involved with these private security companies. Are they allowed to video people like this? Where is the footage? Who controls the footage, etc.? So what it has done is it's kind of confronted a lot of other little issues in the body politic and drawn attention. We have also three reports. And also back along, I would have introduced Shell to Sea to several international groups like the Goldman Award came to Willie Cardoff through one of those contacts. Maura is particularly good at following up those kind of things. The Sierra Club in the United States is somebody over here. Community monitors had a big group of people who held a hearing up there as well. So we've had a lot of international. They were able to call, but I had nothing to do with that, an independent pipeline expert to come in and give his view. So it has been approached from several angles, costing millions of euro to everybody. Nobody funds. I had a great problem with a priest from an NGO who kept saying to me, but where did they get the money? He could not believe that every one of us uses the money of our own pocket. There's no such thing. If I want to go to a meeting, I pay for my meeting, I buy my meal. The same in Eris. There's a little fund for Shelter Sea to pay for the website. They have an excellent website and that came out of a meeting in Galway where a young man who had been attending a seminar said, you know, I think I can set up a website. And the website was set up about seven years ago. It's just very nice to think. He represents young people and the President's Council at the minute. So he has gone on. He found it spun out for um, teens with problems. He's Rory McKiernan. So I think he'll never know how much he did. He's like Dokken in Nigeria. He'll never know how much he did by sharing his website space with Shell to see. And it has really kept a very detailed record. You're here this week. Last Saturday, the table observers were here for four hours working on all these issues. At the end of that meeting, we realised that the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders is coming to Ireland the week after next. So could we ever animate Shell to see to get a submission in? Could we ourselves try a submission? And now we've extended it to Love Leitrim. Could they ever make a little? It's just so contrary to all our Irish experience. When we did our reports, we took, three of us went to Dublin and we went to seven agencies one day, Department of Justice, several places like that. We had seven agencies to give our number two report to on the court cases. And we rang them a couple of weeks in advance and said, we'd very much like to hand it to an official rather than to leave it at the reception desk. So we'd be grateful if you would meet us. And the only one out of the seven was the Irish Commission for Human Rights. Just just unbelievable. Pretending that he was on the phone inside, he had gone out. We went back two or three times. Even the Garda Commissioner's office was so accommodating besides us. The Attorney General's office, it seems we shouldn't have gone near it, but at least the security man knew we were coming. And he accepted it and explained that usually groups don't come to the Attorney General's office with a complaint. But I think I was very, very disappointed with the Irish Human Rights Commission. 
And indeed, since that time, there have been people who have resigned from it, very dissatisfied. Our experience, sincere or not, at least the Garda Commissioner's Ombudsman knew how to receive people and take reports. And you will learn that they suggested themselves doing an investigation of policing and the government of the day refused to give them permission, which I think was terrible. So that has been done twice. We have had three reports and each time we go around. So we are quite sure that everybody in government, everybody in the judiciary knows the situation. But no comeback, no effort whatsoever to resolve that. There were efforts to have meetings from government with the people up there, but the people felt they were being framed. So they, I wouldn't have been there, but they would have upset meetings and they would have stood in meetings and they would have made it awkward for meetings. And then there were other times when they went up to the government and said all they had to say and still no comeback. So about three weeks ago, maybe less, a note came through the contact form of the Shell to Sea website. And we don't know who the good person was who just said, Special Rapporteur is coming to Ireland. It may be helpful for Shell to Sea to get in touch. So whoever was the good person who did that, the name doesn't mean anything to us. It's an Irish name. We don't know, was it somebody in the office who just did it out of sympathy? I got a copy of it. It was circulated to all of us, the table observers, everybody. I wouldn't know how many people took it up. I contacted Shell to see and I bamboozled them as the only word. I said, you can do it, you can do it. Because last year we made a submission to the Universal Periodic Review and Human Rights and Shell to see did a good one and Table did a good one as well. And we were on record. But in Ireland... There is no attention given to environmental rights at all. There's no attention given to the right to health other than you have to be sick first before any legislation covers you. Very little on preventive health. So I read the material on who is a human rights defender. I sent up the material to Eris. I said, at best, you've done your UPR submission, adapt it to the submission you want to make. First contact is very difficult to get an email address, so... I just am so proud of them. Maura Harrington rang Geneva and she said, how do I get to this office? Bing, 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 bing. And she discovered that you actually send in everything to a thing called registry at attention of, and then it's forwarded. And within two days, she had a reply back, interested in Shell to see, meeting the special rapporteur, giving them a full hour for themselves, telling them over the following communication they could have as many in their delegation as they wanted so this for me is one other avenue but it's so sad it's outside our government that we have to go outside again for attention to the rights of the community the table observers ourselves we would not be selfish about this we feel it's the community that has the issue that must get priority at all times but we decided here on Saturday that we would try ourselves so we sent in a request with our three reports yesterday and there's a reply back today that we are very welcome to attend with other environmental groups. Ours mightn't be a separate meeting, but it was just the attitude of response, of welcome from the Human Rights Office. It was in such contrast to our reception in our own country. When is this event? The 21st of November. So now I'm this evening on Love Leitrim 
trying to get them to attend as well because they're only at the beginning of the story and I don't see that their outcome is going to be any easier. They themselves made their way to the door last week while I was there with another group in Leitrim. I'm hoping they'll get to this as well. What I'm hoping for this, in the letter she said 9.30 to 10.30 or 9 to 10.30, people concerned with environmental issues will meet with the rapporteur and I think we're in that group. And for me that's just great because it means that environmental rights might get some mention. When we were preparing for the Universal Periodic Review, true, the government had a good website up and it was held well. And they had their meetings in seven venues, they were supposed to, two or three weeks beforehand. And when we isolated where these meetings were held, two were held in Dublin in very ordinary places, which was great for the people. The other three were all held in third-level institutions, none in Mayo, and nobody ever went near Eris. And that would be very much criticised by the human rights community, that you knew you had a problem in Ireland. We attended the meeting to prepare the UPR and that we felt these seven meetings were just held and they would only have maybe between 30 and 60 people present. So it's a new opportunity, whether it gets us any further or not, but at least the table observers now would be advising how to explain yourself in human rights terminology to agencies at the UN. Just as in Biara in Agone, one day Willie Cardoff's son saw a group of people coming towards the fields of his father. And with mobile phones, they can alert people very quickly. And five people gathered in Willie Cordoff's field and just said no to the shell contractor that was there. Whether you have, and this is again where the government has done something extraordinary, for the first time it granted compulsory acquisition orders to a private company. So they walked into the field to begin their survey work and the people stood there and refused to move. And they were eventually arrested and brought to the High Court in Dublin over months that took. I don't think anybody will ever forget the emotion of that day. And I was in the court that day, as I've been in court many times, when it was declared they had to go for an indefinite period to court until they purged the contempt. The journey from that area to Dublin is horrendous in itself. So that day they weren't going back. And the wives were there. I think journalists and everybody just broke down because they were ringing home to say, he's not coming back with us. It was shocking. And then they were taken out. And, you know, Mihal Shine is maybe late 60s at the time. Willie Cordoff, Philbin, Vincent McGrath, and his brother, Philip McGrath. So they're put into the Black Mariah and off they went to Mount Joy and eventually to Clover Hill. And they had to stay there until they purged the contempt. And they just stated they were not purging their contempt. And they were very well liked in the prison by the prisoners. They were kind of... And they spoke very well to of the prisoners any time they had a chance. So there was nothing ugly in that relationship. And then the relatives had to make that journey every week to see. 94 days is three months and a bit. Quite a long time. The only reason, the injunction, we were all told, you know, when you're ignorant of the law, 
all told an injunction couldn't be lifted. It was doing Shell so much reputational damage that Shell applied to have the injunction lifted. So it was all for nothing. In any event, the pipeline was proved to be wrong in that place. So in fact, those five people went to jail for their right and the right was eventually recognised. And there's no compensation to them for that to happen. And I mean, there should be huge compensation from the state for allowing that to happen. We'd have gone up to Cloverhill. I went to Cloverhill, said the rosary outside the prison once. And then on another occasion, went in with the relatives to visit them inside. And they're just brilliant people. You know, they were able, they were mature, they were able to take it. And Owens Wiwa came during the week they were released. And he was there with us on the day they were released. And he marched with them down the street. And he was on the podium and spoke. So that was a great link between Eris and Agoni. Yes, I was watching the Rossport put into prison, visited them in prison and was there the day that they came out of prison. Maura herself went to prison a number of times. And she too spent a month in prison. And again, is to be respected in that she never mentions a word about the prison. Everything is sacred in relation to the people she would have met there. And some of them would have large crimes sitting on their heads. And in the UPN rapporteur thing, there is a thing about stigmatisation. I think it was an awful humiliation for her when the judge sent her to be psychiatrically examined. And she had to see a psychiatrist at the wish as she went into prison. On the other hand, once you serve your prison sentence, you get rid of all your fines. She was in, well, I'd say two or three times, but the month, I think, was the longest. And her husband sat outside the prison with a placard every single day of those 31 days. Uh, and that you would notice up in Eris, couples are activists. They're nearly all in couples, which is extraordinary for me. There's a lot of relationships, too, because... It's a closed-in enough community, so there's a lot of marriages across families. So that would help the unity a bit as well. Then the other person, Niall Hartnett, was a person from Rossport Solidarity Camp, and he spent six months in prison as well. So, oh yeah, Pat O'Donnell then. Uh, he, Niall was, in fact, they were both there the day I went to Castle and Pat O'Donnell was in... I think nearly three months, maybe five months, I think. And he's a, had an awful story altogether from attempted murder, one would think, from the sinking of his boat. And, of course, the lie is given to that and the Gardaí will not investigate it. They look down and the boat is lying at the bottom. They ascertain the boat is there, but they never followed that up. Like, it's extraordinary that they didn't follow that up either accuse him of sinking his own boat or accusing other people of sinking. He made a kind of a minor remark to a guard and he got five months for it. Some, uh, one has to be so careful looking at it because big apparent abuse between the judiciary and the guardy, you know. When the table observers analysed the court cases, we began to look at what we would say was a little strategy to catch people and if you sit on the road you're causing an obstruction so that's public order act nine if the guard tells you get up off that road and you refuse to get up that's public order act number eight 
One of them has a fine of 200 euro and the other has a sentence of three months to six months. And of course, when these protesters are brought before the court, they get either and both of those. And a suspended sentence means that you are liable to serve the prison sentence if you sit on the road again. So I think it's a very subtle way of undermining the right to protest. So the table campaigners now to which I belong, we are very strong on that one, that the law has been managed in a very benign way, but to make sure that the strong protesters are removed from the road. And there is always the problem. I was looking at one set, and there were 19 before the judge on that day on 83 charges. There was another day when there were 27 before the court and the guards made a mistake and 23 of them had to be withdrawn because the guard work wasn't good. If I had time to know what is the final number of charges that have been imposed on the community for the right to protest, it would be enormous. And the state is putting everybody to that expense as well. And then they had what they call special sittings for Shell to see, which I think... It's also very dangerous because why would you have a special sitting? Why, you know, this is district court level. And then we came across this other huge anomaly that district court hearings are not recorded. So there's no way of checking out because these are all prosecution cases using the Garda as the witness for the prosecution. So it's always a Garda versus a protester. If you have no record of what was said... I think this is a general big problem in Irish law now when I look at it because there's no way that we as observers can go back and check. We discovered that Maura Harrington had got one guy's cases on transcript by hiring a private legal stenographer and getting that approved by the judge and it cost €1,000 for a few hours. It's just unbelievable. And the transcript is wonderful because in the transcript of those cases that I read, we were trying to get the people to talk about reasonable excuse that I sat down, I protested because I believe of a reasonable excuse in that I'm safeguarding the health and well-being of this community. And the guardie would kind of look up to the ceiling and say, I can't comment on that. They would not engage, neither would the judge, with reasonable excuse. It was used in Mary Kelly's case in Shannon, you see. So they just won't entertain that. For young protesters, they kind of have to learn to measure conviction and their future. They have solicitors and that. And the solicitor, I discovered, his only role there is to make a great plea for mitigation. There's no question nearly of getting off any case because it's so easy. You know, get up. I don't get up. You know, and not only get up, there's two cases in that that you're sitting as the obstruction, you don't obey the... So there's nothing to argue about that. No solicitor's going to get into that very deeply, but he'll try to... Try reasonable excuse, try you're very young, try doing very well academically in college, try a whole lot of things to mitigate the sentence.